Greetings. How are you? Much better. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> dying. They figured out what I had. What did you have? Hold on. Wait a second. We've got to do some <laughs> intros here. we got to make sure that maybe recording. Who knows what's going on here? <laughs> Look at you. That better be gin. No, I wish. <laughs> Sparkling water. <laughs> okay. Welcome back to The Death of Meaning. This is Jonathan Neal. I am joined almost as always. It was a touch and go scenario there. Camilla Johnston, how are you? Much better. Thank you. This uh, is ep- episode seven or eight? Seven? seven? I think I seven. Think it's number seven. Lucky number seven or unlucky number seven. Camilla comes to us from the depths of COVID 19 <laughs> hell. Yes. Uh, so we thought, and then it turned out, no, it wasn't. <laughs> no, I was fortunate enough to have contracted a, not the... Chlamydia. <laughs> Sadly, no, that would have been easier to spot. Um, but um, I've, they <laughs> managed to contract a mutated version of rotavirus. Whoa, what the heck? Yeah, really? so... And it wasn't because they do it on regular panels. They check for rotavirus if you're vomiting. And, of course, it wasn't appearing. They did it again. They thought something. And then, sure enough, there's a – because it's mostly in children that get rota. And then there's a mutated version that they're finding is popping up in adults. And I got it. Congratulations. Thanks for for taking the one down for the rest of us. I appreciate your – Building herd immunity. Yeah. yeah, it was the most. I mean, throw that out there on Twitter. Yeah, you were sick. I was you very were sick. sick. Yeah, I was yeah. in the hospital for a, a day and a half. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, got tested for COVID. Yeah, and they were like, "Nope, that's not it." <laughs> Everybody who comes in your age and looks like you walks out of here in two seconds with COVID, and we're just ruining your lives by shutting the economy down. But yeah, rotavi- rotavirus. They're like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite literally. You might, you might be actually yeah. be ill. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, not not the end of the world, but there's no cure for it. You I just think have to wait think, it out. I think, yeah, yeah, and you're like, don't you have new antivirals on the on the way? Aren't there a bunch of retrovirals? What about you're like, what about remdesivir from Gilead? I heard that was really <laughs> really promising. What about the rest of these things? Are like. Sorry, pal. None yeah. of this is gonna help. None of this is gonna help you. Rotavirus is one of those ones we're learning to live with. <laughs> yeah. You're just, you're just gonna be oh. sick for, for 48 hours. Your entire body is gonna try and abject itself and uh yeah. lost some weight. Yeah. 0.001% actually comes through the back the backside of that with their legs sticking out of their heads, and uh, you know, you should be yeah. okay. It was odd getting treated in this whole experience though because even at ucla they triage you for like four levels before you're allowed in the hospital right and so then they, they, they ran a whole set of uh-huh. of containment measures yep. so did you were you wearing like a tyvek suit did they roll you up in saran wrap and stick a straw through the no <laughs> the but they tube? they make you basically declothe by the last time and then they put you in other neutral clean things 
So that way, if you're bringing some, if you have something else, which I did, and you're not bringing in possibly COVID on your clothes. Right. Or comorbidities for everybody else who's in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel like I've seen an independent film about this. uh, Exactly. (laughs) It's on a very niche website. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, they Google web i'm sure has like six <laughs> versions of this yeah uh, but they don't yeah it's just odd everyone's wearing the you know, the full yeah. clothing I mean, and but... yeah so you so you feel like you're in some science fiction movie yes. you, and you know that you're guilty of something and you don't know what it is correct so it's it's basically <laughs> it's like it is like a kafka-esque camus slash horrible nightmare that most people wake up from just sweating next to their loved ones and you're just like no i'm actually living this i'm literally living this and when i get out i'm gonna have to drive myself home because i can't get a fucking uber to ucla ronald reagan medical center or wherever else yeah Yeah, i'm just sweating and i mean yeah yeah that was the main thing that i thought i might have it is because cuomo chris cuomo in one of his interviews talked about how he was sweating so much he lost 12 pounds in a week and yeah, trust those guys. Those guys. I think so much. It was, <laughs> oh my god! It was horrible. Anyway, so, I'm alive. Where do you think you picked up said rotavirus? They said it takes up to 12 days for that to develop in your system. So, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> and but, you, it, but you were still quarantining 12 days ago. Yeah, this but you, you can get it. Can be on a piece of broccoli, or it can right. be in packaged right. food. It so can be it an basically, It basically is a food poisoning thing. Yeah. It came from some piece of the, up until this point, what you thought was functioning <laughs> supply chain. And then you realized that it was just another piece of the supply chain that had broken down long before anybody else had realized it. The headline in, I don't know, maybe next week's New York Times is going to be like, forget corona rotavirus <laughs> is on the rise is on the rise because of the lack of inspectors workers and everything else and yeah. the entire food chain has been crushed well the sweet green near where we live on san vicente has a b yeah. rating right now and i was oof. like who's checking <laughs> oof. oof i read a fantastic uh piece and now i'm not for the life of me i'm not going to remember where this thing was it wasn't in the atlantic it wasn't in the new york times but it was a it was a short piece by a guy who had run a pizza place in the east village of new york basically about the racket that is the food safety rating program like new york city mm-hmm. began and like la began and what these people have to jump through in order to get their their grades yeah get to get their grades in the windows and of course of course with food ratings it's not like there's like oh that place is like a c plus it's cool like <laughs> <laughs> it's passing you know it's passing. they just didn't they just didn't apply themselves but i think that i've heard the food is fantastic um <laughs> It is, it is, they said it, it, this guy described it as like the perfect revenue generator for um, the New York City uh, health department because it's just like an endless array of fines on top of fines. I'm sure. That, that then just comes into however, how, once you know how to, how to play this game, people know how to play the game, but it mm-hmm. really sounds, you can, you can see how these regulatory regimes produce Republican voters 
at heart because right. when they're subject to this kind of, you know, you want to start a restaurant and you want it to be entrepreneurial and you've got a whole bunch of ideas. And then there's this system by which if there is you know, um, frost in the freezer and there is food on the ground where it's like, oh, that's, they look, that looks like rodent droppings. The guy's like, no, that's like, that's like barley. And they're like, looks like rodent droppings. That's points, you know? And it's like, there's no, there's no arguing with it. It's like an equally right. Kafka-esque uh, setting. And it was, it was a fascinating read because you, you realize like how much, how much work and how much sweat, how much anxiety is going in to just getting that A rating on the front and then it doesn't stop. And, mm -hmm. and, how, and how clean, in fact, your A rated places are. And, it's, and it's, not, it's not a cleanliness thing. It's like a management thing. Right. There are, there are these, he would hire these guys who are like working in the kitchens. They're like freaking out about the stuff. And this guy's like a new restaurant owner and he's got cooks in there in the East Village running his kitchen who are like, dude, we're going to get the health inspector's going to show up and we're going to get points. <laughs> and he's like, what are you talking about? And these guys are like, this guy's going to be out of business in two seconds. Let's go find a new job. <laughs> like, yeah. The workers know better the regulatory regime than the owners do. And I mean, it's a, it's a fant it was a, it was a fantastic read. I've really got to, I've got to figure out where it came from. There, I used to work at, when I was in high school, I worked at a farmer's market and the process of getting organic certified is all, yes. is a equally as bizarre and terrible racket uh, because you pay by the acre to become certified organic. And so large farms who are already in existence before the organic craze, and you're not allowed to do it piecemeal. Right. So it's, it's terrible. I mean, it, even if the, the farm is doing everything by the organic standards, which is just not, I mean, even then, it's not even the FDA that's certifying your stuff organic unless you're yeah, one of the major. Or, and not even that, it's Oregon Tilth. Yeah. Or Food Quality International. Yeah. And I'm like, who are these guys? Yeah. Who's, what is the Oregon Tilth that's, that's really <laughs> managing my organic produce? Right. Signing off. Although there's a part of me that's like, I'm going to trust those guys more than I'm going to trust the FDA. Yeah, at this point. Because it's, it, it's all like the Kroger stuff. It's like the simple truth organic stuff that's like FDA organic. You're like, hmm. Right. <laughs> not so sure about that. Yeah. How organic could that possibly be? Whereas like, you know, some like tiny little packet of dates from like Afghanistan. It's like, Oregon Tilth, certified organic. You're like, yep, yep. <laughs> trust in that one. They look like... And it was like, and it's like 28 bucks. There's like three dates in there. Yeah. Like, they've lost yep. all their nutritional value while flying here from That's Afghanistan. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Petrified dates. It's like they, they meant, they meant you to put it inside of like a candle to keep it from, from boiling the wick all the way down to the, to the wax. And you're like, Hmm, I'm going to suck on these during the pandemic and make sure I get all of my fiber and my sugars. <laughs> we're, work. But like the article you sent, we're about to face a serious food shortage. That's right. So this, this came across the transom just recently today. It was a little alarming because there was this, the way that this entire thing was being written was like, oh my God, people are not going to be able to eat their hamburgers. And you're reading every other paragraph and it's like, 
these are animals that are getting ready to be slaughtered for no reason other than that human beings couldn't figure out how to like marshal the supply chain to people who might need the calories and the protein someplace as much as that is kind of grotesque. Mm -hmm. But it is, it is, I got to imagine that if this thing gets any legs, this will be the, the end of the beef industry. Right. Because I don't know. Did you ever see the movie HUD? No. So based on a book, and I want to say it's almost like, it's like a, it's like a Steinbeck novel type book, but stars, um, old blue eyes. Oh my God. I can't believe. uh, No, no, no. Sorry. The other blue eyes. Um, Paul Newman. Okay. Great. Uh, 50s era, maybe early 60s, even Western HUD, and he's a he's the like young kind of ne'er do well on the cattle ranch. Doesn't want anything to do with the 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 family business. Um, um, But there's a there is a scene of the cattle on this ranch getting hoof and hoof and mouth disease. Right, and so the government fda at that point it wasn't even the fda but basically the requirement was is like you dig a huge hole in the ground drive the cattle into this hole and then they shoot them with rifles kill all the cattle right as a containment right i mean we're talking about a pandemic measure i mean this is like a horrific you know way of containing the virus disease, that was yeah. there, the, the disease that's spreading amongst the cattle. And so it doesn't affect other, other ranches and other, and other property. And I remember as a kid watching this thing, and I mean, you really are fundamentally affected. Maybe the you is a generous way of thinking about it. I have mm-hmm. no idea. But one is, gen- is, is definitely affected by this scene where they, these ranchers basically open up on a, on a, basin filled with cattle right and that and that's this that's that's the big climactic not climactic but like act two uh um transitional scene you're like oh my god this is horrific and this article today describing that that is basically what these ranchers are going to be doing not because the cattle is ill but because the humans are ill or are Mm -hmm. scared of getting ill trapped in their homes and not eating, not eating the beef or not able to get access to the beef because the supply chain ends and the supply chain can't deliver these cattle to their predestined ends. So they're just going to be slaughtered killed. for no reason. Just killed. Yeah. It is. That should be on the front page of every newspaper. Mm-hmm. And it does make you think like, oh my God, factory farming is insane. And it does yeah. make you then think that like the only ethical way of being is the absurdity from Portlandia where they go <laughs> and they join a cult after right. finding out where their chicken came from up in Northern Oregon, <laughs> wherever it was. Right. Oh my God. I, they, they would like this moment you're reading this. It's like, I can't, I can't believe we do this. I can't believe that they're, they're like living beings, like cattle, like mm-hmm. cows are cute. I've got a one and a half year old. We sit around the house all day and we're like, look, cow, right? It's like ridiculously sentimental. And then you're like, we basically just slaughter these things, right? That's not, right. That's not, a, that's not even a living thing, 
right? We, we use it's a like, very small bit of them and then toss the rest we, away. We treat cockroaches mostly better than we treat cattle, <laughs> yeah. right? But but you don't see cockroaches showing up in most kids' books, right? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. Not until we right? need to teach them about the It's like we can't, like, like New York City can't eradicate rats as fast as we can eradicate cows. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I so. stopped eating mostly stopped mostly eating red meat when i um i still eat it if, when restaurants come back if it's if i go out sure. for a nice dinner just it's a treat but um when you read about the amount of food waste in this country in general even without the pandemic yeah. and even without the uh supply chain issue it's just i mean it's one thing when our ancestors were killing a cow or whatever bison or buffalo and they use the entire animal and it was so much more efficient, but now we're just. It I agree, but I also have to say that like that shit is so fucking romanticized, right? The idea that like our ancestors right. somewhere back in the belt were, you know, really good at you know hunting down <laughs> the buffalo, and then that the idea that their lives were not consumed with where their next meal is coming from, and that there was one bad harvest, and all of a sudden everyone is fucking starving. I mean. I can do with a certain amount of food waste mm-hmm. and this, and I can do with a certain amount of sort of supply chain idiocy to know that most people are getting fed. But the idea that this thing comes down and 5% of the pork processors Ugh. shut down and all of a sudden the headline is like, we are murdering pigs. Like you saw on the street today. <laughs> In Santa yeah. Monica or yesterday, right? Like the, 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 the poor pigs that people are keeping as pets in Southern <laughs> California. Yeah, no, it's, it's not great. And I think uh, until we can figure out some sort of system that replaces those peop- those ranchers' income or, and we find something that's as cheap as the government subsidizes that beef and chickens yeah. and whatever to be when it shows up at Walmart or Kroger yeah. or Publix – that's the problem until we can figure out something that's as cheap to produce for lower income and, and easily distributable. But it's so, I mean, I agree with you. Um, But it's gotta be cultural more than it's gotta be just economic. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, I mean, the, the beyond meat substitutes, the soy based and 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 bean based things that they're coming out with they're not bad they really, really are good. pretty tasty um as much as there was a whole bunch of backlash they're like this stuff is not healthy you're like I'm not looking really for health food here we're looking for like a meat substitute and <laughs> if it's a little bit fatty and it's a little bit salty i'm like we're not gonna we're not gonna have a huge argument to make um the same way when organics were first making their big presence in the market, people were like, well, you know, it's, it's like, it doesn't like, it, it's, it's not going to lose weight. You're not going to lose weight eating that stuff. And like, that wasn't the pitch, pal. <laughs> right. right. It wasn't like eat organic, lose weight. It's not dietary. Right. It's like, you're not going to, you know, get infested with some horrific cancer when yeah. you're in your sixties or seventies, because you've got, Roundup in your system, trying to eliminate the white blood cells from yeah. doing their business, right? And you're like, oh, sorry, we patented that. Can't give you chemo because guess what? Monsanto won't let us. I mean, <laughs> to be super cynical about it. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah no i remember when that whole uh the organic versus non-organic thing was happening and both my parents scientists were just like who picks up a piece of broccoli and thinks this one will help me lose weight versus that had of broccoli <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly like, i don't buy organics because I, I don't need to lose weight you know it's like what the f pal, they're both dude. they're both ahead of broccoli like, how about this i'll give you two <laughs> Two things of broccoli, and I'll spray one with Clorox. And which one do you want? You're the like, one that cures oh, COVID. Yeah, yeah Clorox. Because <laughs> I had rotavirus, and I heard you can inject that shit. <laughs> Even better when it shows up on greens. Oh, God. Yeah, RIP. Yeah, so, so, so the, meat, the meat conveyor belt may be broken, um, which, was, which, was, which was the first inkling today that I had – that and i'm not a cheerleader for this but it was also the first inkling today that i had that we had gotten to this moment where it was kind of like april into may denial phase mm-hmm. and now it's like as you're getting into the point where it's like things have now gotten stretched 26 million unemployed right there are there are industries out there that are that are really actually now feeling the hit. There are people that are feeling the hit. And if someone's writing a headline in Barron's or wherever it was, that's like the supply chain for beef is done. Even though that might have been a little histrionic because they're like, oh, it's, you know, well, most people can still find beef, but there's some places where the shelves are empty. Um, I'm, I think that this is now, we are now heading into the like, the, the, the death by a thousand cuts phase. Yeah. It's like, it's not going off a cliff and collective fear. It's like every day is like a slow degradation. And my biggest concern is it's going to summer and everyone's looking at summer as this like great savior moment normally people don't get sick in the summer flu's gone in the summer viruses don't like the summer i look at it as like people get hot and annoyed yeah and uncomfortable and they're out of work and they get irritable and they are pissed Mm -hmm. and that is going to result not that i'm looking forward to this but it is going to result in more social upheaval over the next 14 to 28 days than we have seen over the last period of right. social distancing. And I think Southern California is bracing for this because everyone's waiting to figure out how you can open this stuff up. And you saw the headlines from just this last weekend where right over the county line in Ventura, it was like open day at the beach. Yeah. And I was having a conversation with someone about this and I was like, you know what? I, they need to open the beaches in, in Santa Monica and in LA County too. And let people make their own decisions about how much they want to, quote unquote, social distance. The beaches are huge and broad. You can stay pretty far away. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist. I don't think that that's going to be like, I went to the beach and there were like 800 cases of COVID that all showed up from right. our beach going. If anything, I feel like we went to the beach and we had a great day and we got tired and we went home and we went to sleep rather than like we got stuck at home in Inglewood, in West LA, in whatever, and we're just super angry that we are in the same house with our kids and our families and our <laughs> and our friends and whoever else. And and then we just had to get out of the house. 
right. right? And now we're just out of the house and now we're on the street and now we're arguing with people in the neighborhood and whatever else is going on. And Sandy is not going to be pretty. Yeah, in San Diego, they made it so the beaches are open for exercise and then um, most of them are open just for exercise and then a few are open for families. What does that mean? Like you, well, because they completely shut the beaches there. So if you were running on it, you got a thousand dollar fine. <laughs> okay. So now you can run on the beach, but you can't sit on the beach. Uh, yeah. And what they're trying to open them up for families, but keep the parking closed. And I'm just like, who defines a family? Then you, then that's a whole other, th- but Santa Barbara, the beaches were open. So it's a good point. It's bullshit. It's, they should not define a family. It should not define a family. Like I'm here with my like my cockroach, my pet cockroach. Exactly. <laughs> I'm here with my 17 cockatoos, and uh, how dare you? My pet how pig. How dare you? Yeah. 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 So, so you were on the streets of Santa Monica, and At there was a gentleman. There was a like. Yeah. Was that 7 a.m.? There was like a 60 year old guy, 55 year old guy, on his cell phone with his pot bellied pig just following behind him. That I mean I. Did, the thing was huge. It, it was, was big. It was very big. It was like a. It was like a Malamute. It was a very large, large pig. animal. And because I was running, um, I was running back towards Brentwood. I ran down to the pier, and I was coming back, and uh, and I ran. They were already f- down the block, and or like you know, ten feet down the block, and I ran past them, and I saw it in my peripheral vision, and I was like, "That's wait a second. And so I got to the block and I turned around. Content. And I, around and I was like, this is too good. Apparently, this pig lives on 20th and Montana in Santa Monica. You went, in, you went and interviewed him. My friend saw my Instagram story and replied and said, oh, yeah, that's my neighbor. That's bullshit. You need to go and be a little more assertive and say, hey, that's a great pig. Yeah, where does one keep this? So I've got a question for you. Yeah. Who- has rotavirus, vomits for like three days straight, has 102 <laughs> fever, and then two days later goes for like an eight mile jog. Oh, uh, I mean, it's been I've and apparently hasn't showered yet. <laughs> no, I did. I did this morning. Um, no, it's yeah. I don't know. My my lungs are not happy with me, but okay. Really? Yeah, it seems. It seems this is this is this is self destructive behavior. <laughs> We're gonna have to keep. We're gonna have to keep an eye on you. This is my only form of sanity right now. Going for a jog. Going for a run, and yeah, that's pretty much it. That and cooking. And driving. You're not driving anymore. No, I've been trying to replace that with steps, <laughs> with walking. Oh, no, I'm biopolitics. That's, that's how bad it is. <laughs> and so yesterday, yesterday I got in, I think, 14 miles <laughs> because of the run, Insta- and then oh, and then walking. Steps. Yeah. That's pretty good. It's not That's pretty good. normal though. Considering you can't really do much, but it's okay. How's how's parenthood? Um it's interest it's interesting. It's interesting. Um more monopoly? I got to say that it's funny the during the week is better than the weekend. The weekend is like terrible. And it's, it's, it's not because I don't love my family, <laughs> but it is, but it is because we are so used to having time to be productive, conversing right. with other adults and getting things done that 
that the, the, the weekends where we're also usually pretty stressed out about what's going on at work or what's, what's happening just in general logistically. And then when you have the two kids to take care of full time and you realize like, wow, there's just like, there's no doing any of that. And there's no just trading off time. And it mostly sucks because my seven-year-old just does not want to hang out with any of us for any extended period of time, except for the fact that that's the only thing that she desires to do. So it's one of these funny, at seven years old, psychoanalytic repulsion and desire <laughs> dynamics, which is like, I love you so much. I want to kill you. I love you. Spend time with me. I want to throw you in the pool. Um, so... It's it it is a it is an interesting and I'm sure this is happening everywhere else and I'm sure there are many more articulate people on it but it's it's a it is a demonstration of how quality family time requires not spending time with your family yeah because it needs 100%. to be quality hundred percent it needs to be quality yeah hundred percent and and so I have it, this is this has been a moment where I've even become more convinced that like. If you are listening and you want to spend time with family and you feel that it is necessary, our eight listeners, um, schedule it and then like get help or don't spend time with each other. Like, yeah, it is, it is, there's nothing pretty about what goes on around here on the weekends. And it was hot and we have, you know, <laughs> we, we were, it was, it was also the, the, the stimulant for my, uh, premonition that this place is going to go down in a ball of flame driven by the tempers of all of Los Angeles at being stuck indoors after May 15th if they don't yeah. in fact lift, lift the shelter in place order by them because tempers were running hot this weekend. They were right. running hot. Um, at the same time, I can't complain. Um, yeah, it's there's. I did not have rotavirus. Don't have coronavirus. We we're already talking about breaking quarantine with all of our friends, and there's just all the people that you've been around for right. weeks upon weeks who, you know, other than you, who uh, you know apparently get sick off of eating strange broccoli from B-rated uh, sweet greens. Apparently, yeah. Yeah, sweet greens. I mean, I wouldn't go in that place if you touch it with a dump of bowl, <laughs> but. Um, no place that has two outlets within like six miles of one another deserves anybody's business. <laughs> no, not right now. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, we were, we were already talking about trying to get together with friends and at some point, and, and this is the other thing that I could tell. It's like, everyone's getting tired of it. Everyone's been in quarantine. So this thing is going to deteriorate all by itself, right? right? People are, people are going to stop their social distancing. People are going to, they will go out in public wearing masks. And I'm sure that when you went for your run, you wore a mask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do. I just don't put it over my face. Really? Yeah, I put yeah, it down yeah. here and wait. Until you have it like the back pocket. It's like wearing your, it's like having your license when the cops show up. You're like, yeah. oh, here's my mask. Um, people will, this, the whole thing is going to degrade. All of the restrictions are going to degrade and it's going to go back to a kind of distributed, more democratized sense of public health. Right. I don't think anybody's going to be rushing back to the restaurants. It's not like everyone's going to be gunning to get the businesses reopened, but they're certainly going to say, I'm going to go over to my friend's house. Yeah. And we're going to get together with like three or four people who I know have, they've been in quarantine light 
for three weeks and no one's sick. Although yeah. in your case, I have no idea what you're going to tell people because you're like, <laughs> it's all over Instagram with you getting an IV and be like, sure, you got that COVID. <laughs> you have no chance. And you got might as well tested. go and hide Got tested. You yeah, you got tested. And, but, but the tests are not even that accurate. That's the whole thing. Like 70% accuracy for the COVID tests yeah. and, the, and the serology tests, the ones for the antibodies. We, I mean, we, don't, we just don't know. This is, the whole, this is the huge, huge failure. Right. My doctor told me not to get the antibodies test. He's, he's, well, he said... It doesn't mean anything. He said, if you have to pay for it, don't get it. And he said, if you get it and it says that you do have the antibodies, don't trust it because it's don't probably trust wrong. It. That's right. It's like a, so I can just a seventy percent a seventy percent accurate COVID test. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like, like at best, you know, at best two out of four. You know, maybe three out of four. Like, get the right answer. I mean, that's just like that's those are that's horrible. That's uh, unbelievable. Anyway, that's science, you know. It's yo, that's science. <laughs> it is. Okay. This is, this is also where I feel like there is the, the, the fact that the numbers in California and LA County have been really, really low, thankfully, and pretty stable, and we haven't overwhelmed the healthcare system, and there's been a bunch of fantastic, I mean, what better place to be in California where you've got yeah. some of the best doctors around. Um, the the fact that that is the scenario the that the testing is so shit and yeah that the confidence that people have in i mean it, what what does it mean i mean you go and you get it and then it's like it can it can be dormant and you can you can it can show up then like 2 weeks later 3 weeks later and you can get a you know uh, uh i don't know what you want to call it like a flare up again right and and then we have no idea. So how long are people contagious still? Like after you've had it, if it comes back again, how long are you going to be contagious? Does you having the antibodies mean that you're not contagious for a certain amount of time? And they're finding that having it doesn't mean you're immune from getting it again. So you can be reinfected. <laughs> it's just not even just like a flare up, a proper reinfection. Yeah. And that so I, I heard, horrible. I heard, yeah, no, that's right. And I heard, I don't know whether those are like genuine reinfections or whether those are people who've had it and then the thing just go, they like right. some of the folks who don't get symptoms for like two or three weeks, they just come back into mm -hmm. all of a sudden they get sick again. But that's genuinely horrifying, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, oh my God, like I felt horrible for two days and then I went, got tested and it said, oh yeah, you had it. And so then I got better and then I feel great. Do you go back out? Right. You do I mean, how long is your quarantine now? Do you go back out? Do you risk infecting other people? Do you know you go out there with like the scarlet C on your chest <laughs> saying, I'm sorry, I had unprotected grocery store with <laughs> this person. And uh, what can I tell you? I have no idea when it's going to come back. Better check yourself. It's it's going to be a long time of us wearing masks outside. That's what I've just determined. It's just going to be the... Which I've also realized, like, is disgusting. I hate it. How it's just, like, the breathing on yourself? Yes. 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 I can almost... I can almost handle right now my daughter breathing on me, but I, even that I can't really handle. Yeah, I don't <laughs> It's like... This is, this is one of those things where it's like, I am one of those people who... 
need cool, fresh, unbreathed air <laughs> all the time. I would rather have I would rather have an open window in 120 degree Las Vegas than like recycled hotel air. That is such a niche complaint. That is such a a you know exactly what I'm talking about. No, that's not true. Bullshit. There is no race associated with that. Fuck that. You are totally out of control. That is that is 85% of humanity. I guarantee you has the same reaction I do. You're sitting on a train. There's there are three people around you. They're all breathing into your space. You're like let's crack a window let's get a little fresh air let's come on how many times have you driven around los angeles and you're like this is not a day to be driving with the windows down the on my car and you're on the 10 and you realize that 40 to 50 to 60 percent of the cars that are on the 10 have their windows down it's because they don't want to smell themselves (laughs) (laughs) i mean i get it i drive with the window down no matter what like even if it's raining i'll probably have the window open at least a little bit because i like on the other but on the other side with your electric window yes come on (laughs) absolutely both of them on the other side somebody else away yeah down just a crack (laughs) yeah yeah i just need to calibrate it enough so they don't get that like sound yep Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) look at you you're transforming into a, a proper la a proper Californian that you have all this. It takes like two weeks to figure that one out. You're like, oh my God, why does my window, why can't they design a better car so that I don't get this like reverb system inside right. of my car? That seems like a huge design flaw. I'm yeah. still wondering, I'm still wondering who's responsible for that. Okay. At some point, we've got to talk about some art. Yes, let's do that. Pretty soon. Um, even though all of this has been wildly entertaining. So I'm going to jump I'm going to jump to maybe a couple of things that we're sort of irritated about, but I don't know which one I should go <laughs> Which to. one's the most irritating? There have been some very interesting, um, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the large part, there have been some interesting conversations on the interwebs about the, well, one, we have to acknowledge the, the most brilliant profile of Jerry Saltz. <laughs> How did you come across this? I will give full credit to where credit is due. On Twitter, Dushko Petrovich from Paper Monument, who I follow, who is really a great writer and editor, said, <laughs> sent out a tweet saying that he had written an 8,000-word profile. I want to say appreciation, but profile of Jerry Saltz that he was pretty proud of until he read that. <laughs> and I think that guy's name is Don Ozzy, O-Z-Z-I, or Dan Ozzy. And I do have to say that it is a hilarious. It's, it's good. Even a, it's not even a takedown. It is hilarious. It's a very loosely, nicely written, I would say, it's like the swell of a wave. It starts off slow and it kind of builds and builds and builds. Right. But the, fa- but the fact that he is never letting Jerry Saltz off the hook for the fact that his, and this would be like this great biographical kind of 
kink in the, the narrative of his otherwise self-styled story of having been a failed artist and a truck driver and everything else. This is the thing that he mm-hmm. has revealed in plain sight, his coffee drinking, bizarre proclivities, which this guy has made into a fantastic diagnosis of Jerry Saltz's personality and entire capacity to be an actual critic. And, and, I, and I have a tendency to agree with him. <laughs> right. And the fact that it's all for show, all of, it is all for, it's all affect because the, the one image of him, the inside of the fridge where it's like clearly really nicely manicured Tupperwares with chicken and carrots or something like sweet potatoes and something, things that take time to prepare probably again, because Roberta had cancer and like, Right. I'm sure she's they on a very particular. They watch what they eat. So the fact that he says that he, he can't, he doesn't know how to make coffee, but he knows how to make and break down a sweet potato. Or, or put something into a Tupperware. Right. Bowl. Yeah. No, it, it's a, and there's like these fantastic scenes of, I mean, just the whole thing. So it, it is Dan Otzi, O-Z-Z-I. It was published just a week or two ago, April 11th. Um, I think on his Substack, and it is titled "The World's Most <laughs> Insane Coffee Drinker." To anybody who is listening, Google this, bookmark it, like it, share it. It really is a wonderful, wonderful read. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that it is the. It's the, not the most eloquent. It's, this is not Christopher Hitchens or somebody else doing a great takedown, but, but it, is a, it is a fantastic demotic analysis of Salts and his coffee consumption and, yeah. and, and calling out this self-construction of, of I'm, just, I'm just an everyman who has this funny thing about coffee and walks in the Connecticut landscape or the upstate right. New York landscape. And Dan Otzi does a great job of calling bullshit on the whole thing. Right. Because you can't be best friends with um, Carol Dunham and Laurie Simmons and be an everyman. I mean, granted, no. most people in the country do not know who those two individuals are, but the it is completely incongruous to have the 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 sham that he's created of his life. And I don't think Roberta's like this. It's just him, and then but she plays into it, I guess. But how, it he just has this whole. Well, I feel a little bad for Roberta. Oh, I, I love Roberta. Like... That's the thing. No, no, no. I, I love Roberta too. Actually, I don't. But I, I feel <laughs> I feel badly for Roberta because I feel like Jerry Saltz makes Roberta a prop with inside of his. It's not a it's not a memoir scenario, and it's not a great retelling of some life that he is leading in or he has led with his partner and their friends. Right. It is, an ex- it is an extension of his meanderings online and his interaction with his audience. Right. And so Roberta, who 
he never fails to mention is the co-chief art critic for the New York Times, which for him means that she's got a serious job and she has serious judgments to make and serious work to do becomes a, becomes a, like a, a tagline in, in a, in a standup show. And I don't see, I think Jerry Saltz is a great entertainer. Mm -hmm. He's a very good entertainer. He's got that kind of comedic and a little bit of a comedic quality, but you don't see, I mean, I hate to say it, but like David Sedaris, when he talks about his partner, lifts them up at the same time mm-hmm. that they pokes fun at himself. Saltz rarely, when he is poking fun at himself, does it in a way that's honest right. in my book. That feels like, oh, like I'm just, I'm just this person. You're like, oh, it's like there's no like real foible there. There's no real vulnerability there. Mm-hmm. And I had to unfollow him. I probably unfollowed him probably about a year ago now because the hypersexualization of women on his feed is just so hypocritical to me. I don't think he even sees it, which is what I find frustrating is that I agree Donald Trump is a is a sexual predator, most likely. However, I don't want to hear admitted. From, admitted. Yeah. I don't want to hear from I don't want Jerry Saltz to tell me about it on a piece of legal paper and then post a bunch of hyper-sexualized images when he's a hetero white man who, I just, it doesn't, I don't understand how he doesn't see that that's, those two things don't go well together. And it's not to say that you can't post, a lot of art is hyper-sexualized. However, none of it goes together. Just pick a lane. Just, I mean, just pick a lane and stop telling me how much you love women and how much you value women when there's no, it, it still feels very predatory in a way, even though he's really? not. Yeah, just you think he's a, he's a He's a creeper? I find it creepy, but be, not because, not because I think he wants, not because I think he's um, a predator, but because he doesn't realize what he's doing is somehow off-putting like one of those like creepy weird uncle friends who doesn't understand why they're creepy that's what it is yeah Yeah. understood (laughs) understood well i mean it is a it's it's a piece i guess it's a piece of the brand or i I don't know but it it does seem it does seem off right Mm -hmm. and this is the the lead into the fact that his book on how to be an artist was just published, which I also <laughs> still, it's, it's one of these terms that there is something about there's, I look at Jerry Saltz as this kind of throwback to some sort of 1920s big 10 evangelizer, right? Like mm-hmm. really what Jerry wants to start as a religion. And the problem is, is that he got a late start, and he looks at and he and he and he does the same thing that all these evangelists do and big tent folks of the various different sects they all like they all parade out their failures they all parade out their shortcomings all in advance of like here's how you can be the most successful you right, right. and it's either like here's how you can like make a ton of money and Jesus wants you to make money. And here's all this other stuff. And it's like, he just sounds like that. Like all Mm -hmm. of it sounds like that. And even the promos, even like the, 
the the little things that he's been writing up on Twitter, you're just like, ew, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's just this like stack upon stack of cliches that you can find in the upper reaches of cable television. Right. And how is that not self-evident? Right. How is it not um, visible to the, to, and here's the thing that bugs me. How is it not just visible to the, to the, to the, you know, there are going to be plenty of folks in this populist moment who look at that and say, okay, fine. It doesn't matter. Like I'll, I'll take it. But like, I, I will take Stefan Simkowitz over Jerry Saltz any day. Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. Right. Stefan is, is a, is a, is a operator who love him or hate him. It puts his money where his mouth is. Right. And Jerry is a, is like one step away. Did you ever see the HBO show Carnival? Yeah. He's like one step away from that preacher, like the black eyes and like being like the, the, you know, go lightly fun loving. I mean, just like in general, just like, it's like, he's bad. It's his bad news. This is like early 1920s populism. And there's nothing, there's, there's nothing in salts. There's no genuine self-reflection. No, I don't think he's capable of it. And I find it, he has been writing for a very long time. He is a, he is an important person in the industry for better or worse, but he's neither an artist nor is he a dealer. So no. <laughs> I, I just look not up. even really an art critic. I mean, no, I mean, not, I mean, in a way, maybe, but like, when was the last time someone was like, oh my God, Jerry really wrote cogently about an artist. Right. It made, made the career or made the case for an artist. Right. Right. I mean, at least Roberta will put 1,500, 2,000 words down about um, Helma af Klimt as like Mm -hmm. an important reconsideration and like put it on the line in the paper of record. And whether you agree or disagree is up to you, but at least that's a position. Proper. Or on Donald Judd or on anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not like she's putting big stakes in the ground. It's not like she's going out there after some young... No name. Uh, un- untested no name. But there are plenty of opportunities where she's like, there are shows that she's writing about and shows that she's not writing about. Mm-hmm. He's not. No. He doesn't feel like it. And it's a self-help it's- book. It's, being, it's under the genre of self-help. It's not under the not under the genre the of, of art or art crit, art history. People um, cannot help themselves. <laughs> no. This is not a psychological buffet. <laughs> I, I'm curious who the average buy, the average authentic buyer is, because obviously a lot of people in our industry are going to buy it as a joke. However, for, for friends, yeah. You don't think you don't think it's gonna you don't think it's gonna run run the gamut or it was like oh my god I got you this great we'd like how to be an artist I mean I, that seems like the worst thing to to write it's and to market right now I I mean they're gonna try their damnedest but it's like how to be an artist right now is be like go out there and make shit just leave <laughs> just yeah. go and don't and don't listen to anybody else it's 170 pages it just it's what is he possibly saying there. That, that is, he hasn't already said on Facebook or Instagram. On Instagram, I just find it. I don't. 
the people who are going to buy it authentically are people who are, shouldn't be encouraged to be artists because they're painting dolphins and like seascapes. How dare you? And How they're not, dare you? they're not Turner. I did like what you had to say. The fact that like, it would be a interesting, I don't know. I think there is a lot of desire out there. And so that's the other thing that this preys upon people's desire. Mm-hmm. How to be an artist. No, but not, uh, but not from a long haul trucker who drinks way too much coffee. <laughs> right. And doesn't know how to do anything. Um, what was the other so thing? I want to I want to bring up something else. There were there were two other things. One is I I'm receiving now, like I haven't received in the last couple of weeks. Now the the fundraising appeals are coming in oh, yeah. from arts organizations, and big museums aren't sending these appeals out. But now small scrappy arts organizations are like, now's the time. We haven't been able to meet our april deadline we have a may deadline coming up we got a june deadline coming up we can't do it without you and i believe all of these arts organizations and you made a very good point earlier that said these guys can't do it alone right they need to figure out how to consolidate their audience and get together on various different points Mm -hmm. to make sure that their operations can keep going so what do you think is going to happen? What are, what are your, I mean, what's your, your argument for these small organizations that have been doing arts education or small scale um, community organizing or artists uh, services of one sort of another? How do these people stay in the, stay in the game? I think they're better off going to, each other and figuring out where the all the Venn diagrams overlap the most and making taking five smaller organizations and making one larger one because going after the same group of people for $50 at five locations rather than $250 at one location from the same person I feel like you're much better off doing that uh, it will mean they'll probably have to consolidate staff. However, if the goal is altruism and the goal is to stay and keep the mission alive and to do the actual work of, you know, the various like inner city arts and project art and RX art and art and practice, why not just pull them all together and actually do something effectively and efficiently rather than grasping for enough donations that maybe keep them in, t- in, in business for another six months just to keep the lights on when they could come together, lights already paid for, and now they can actually do the, the something with the money that they've just spent right. however many weeks asking for. It seems, it seems kind of selfish <laughs> to continue to ask for money without looking for options that include possibly shutting themselves down. And I'm a little concerned, and this happens every time there's economic downturn, and it happens out of necessity because the places like schools and shelters are already strapped for cash as it is and not open right now. However, 
a lot of places we'd be better off going to somebody like Mark Bradford and his husband and saying, if we give you X, Y, and Z, can we come under your umbrella? Right. Because not only is it Mark Bradford, I, I get really frustrated at the, and we talk about museums and galleries not having a good business model. Charities do not have a good business model. And not a good business model. <laughs> I mean, it's not meant to make money. However, they do not know it's how not, to manage money. No, no, no. But they, they're supposed to make money. They're supposed to make, they're supposed to make revenue to pay their operations, right. right? I mean, this is like the biggest, the biggest challenge that we have in trying to educate anybody about this stuff is that this is, not, this is not some sort of game where it's like, oh, I'm a nonprofit, so that means that I don't get to pay my employees or build an infrastructure. And just understanding that there, I feel like <laughs> because people might lose their job, there's this fear of shutting a charity or because someone's heart and soul and, you know, hopes and dreams and unicorns are all wrapped into a charity, but it might be better to close and encourage someone to keep their money or donate it elsewhere to an organization that's doing okay than it is to take money from somebody so that you can maybe stay afloat for another few months. And then that money's gone to nothing. No, that's huge. I mean, this is a, it's a hugely important point to make and I can't, I'm looking for the, the terminology for this. And the only one that's coming to mind is like the hugely cynical one of planned obsolescence, but that's not what we're talking about. It's that every organization has to be able to figure out what piece of the organization needs to be sunset mm-hmm. and to get, to give up on certain activities and I think in, in your point, be ready to also, uh, I think in extreme cases, you have to be ready to kind of like give up on a whole set of, a whole set of things and, and partner yourself or consolidate with, uh, with another organization in order to do the things that you want to do, right? In right. order to serve the mission that you're trying to serve. And we can't all serve the same, you know, I serve, you know, 1% of this mission, you serve the second percent of that mission, so on and so forth because it's never going to work in that in that way and in the for-profit sphere we just let the market determine it mm-hmm. right but the problem is there's so many organizations and even profit-making organizations that don't operate just according to like the wills of the market right mm-hmm. there has to be a mechanism that leaders and others look at and they're like we have to take a look at like what we can't do and what we're not doing well. And we have to mm-hmm. shut things down and we have to be able to hibernate. We have to be able to shed skin. We have to be able to shed organs. We have to be able to do all this in a, in a, in a genuine way. And there is no conversation around that. I mean, and, this is something that we do a very bad job of. Well, I think it's also hard because it's so more than business. It's more, uh, there's more emotional investment in it and there's more heartstrings invested in it. And yeah. so people are less prone to being cutthroat about the fact that <laughs> these, in, these organizations should be doing something efficient with money. And I had this argument recently with a friend where I, I'm not, I'm not for AOC's green new deal, not because I don't believe in what she's trying to do but because i have just as much issue 
with giving her a blank check as I do Rumsfeld to go to war. I, I just don't believe in blank checks either way until somebody tells me how the money is going to be spent. Um, I mean, that's a reality of being an American. You don't know. However, that's my issue with a lot of charities is I like to know exactly like, let's just show me the books, like show me right. how, how this $50 I'm going to give to whatever organization is going to be game changing. And if you still shut down in six weeks, I either want my money back or I want it donated to somebody who's still alive, like still functioning because otherwise it's just, you've just wasted my time. Right. I don't just want it going to keeping the lights on in right. your apartment where you were running the stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Just, but this is but this is kind of the trap because we're we're we are reproducing the same argument for like no one wants to pay for operations, mm-hmm. no one wants to pay for the trash to be taken out of your apartment. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to pay for that, but scale up just twenty percent, and all of a sudden you're like, that's a human being who needs that job, who's relying on that organization, who you want to have healthcare and a salary or healthcare and at least a a wage going through until I don't know mid May early June until this whole thing is over. So I would love to get my money back if I made the donation, but at the same time, I'm sort of like, I don't know who, I don't know who the the downstream folks are that are getting the benefits of that, of that small money contribution are. And I would, then they, like in the example you sent me, I would want them to say that then to paying our staff. I'm okay. Making sure sure that they're paying their staff through some sort of, some sort of, right. I'm okay if it says that because then I know at least it's going somewhere. But if it's just, I just don't like the vagueness if you're asking for, I mean, you're also talking to someone whose mother wouldn't let them trick or treat for UNICEF because their overhead was too high. (laughs) She wouldn't let me because she looked up their overhead and it was 20% and she was like, this is outrageous. (laughs) You're showing up to people's houses and you're like, I'll take, uh, can I have a dollar 26? Please to cover the overhead because it's both the twenty percent overhead and six for me walking up this driveway. <laughs> Every other kid came to school with their yeah. little like cardboard thing, and my mom yeah. was like, "Here's a twenty. I'm not doing this." And you're like, "Here's my Excel spreadsheet, you fuckers." <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So my my hatred of overhead is pretty extravagant um, and or extensive rather. But uh, oh, man, we should we should all hit overhead. That's the whole thing. No one's gonna have overhead in the next eighteen months. Mm-hmm. So I've got I've got a I've got a different more philosophical question I've got to ask. Yes. <clears throat> and this will definitely bore everyone to tears, but it it has struck me that over the last few weeks of our sad quarantine, <laughs> yeah, our sad existence, there is this overriding urge, desire, call on everybody's part for authenticity Mm. and so how and so everything about marketing communication organizations behavior families media everything has been like the authentic connection how do you make yourself more authentic to your users to your customers how do you how do you have genuine family relations across these distributed channels, so on and so forth. 
it may be too early yet, but I am going to make a claim that we are going to see the death of authenticity in the next <laughs> six months, at I, the very least. I hope so. And it may, and and I don't know what's going to replace it, but it's not going to be something more authentic. It's not going to be something like more feeling or effective. I think we are heading into, and it'll be interesting to see, but I'll make this claim here again. I would say that the things to be reading and the things to be paying attention to are late 70s and early 80s, postmodernism, the world that begat the simulacrum, the irony, the sort of lack of seriousness, the like literature and everything else that came out of that moment is to me now feeling like, not that it is somehow more responsive to what we're seeing, but it is like a rebuke to the incessant drive to how do we really connect with one another? <laughs> and that shit is going to pendulum swing in a huge way, huge way in the other direction. I don't know when, but it's, but it's coming. I don't know if it's peaked. I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're at peak authenticity yet, but it is coming. It mm-hmm. has got to be coming. Otherwise, I've got to live in a different country because this place is getting unbearable. <laughs> Actually, so I, need, I, need, I need your thoughts on this. An ex-boyfriend reached out a couple days ago and asked if I was excited that everyone was finally as pessimistic <laughs> and nihilistic <laughs> as I am. But here's the, the thing. But here's the thing. <laughs> Those, the pessimism and nihilism are, are versions of a kind of, of, a kind of realism Mm-hmm. And thus, a version of authenticity. This mm. is what people are. This is what people are looking for, because when some, because listen, when someone comes in and they're like, "Listen, I'm gonna level with you. You're gonna die." <laughs> that is not like, "Oh my God, you're just fucking with me." And this is some allegorical, weird postmodernist right. tale yeah. I'm in. This is like, this is like fuck, I'm going to die. My doctor just told me I believe in expertise and this whole experience mm-hmm. is like the most authentic I could ever imagine, right? This is like, that's not what people have right now. Mm-mm. What they're getting right now is they're like, you've got COVID-19 and you have X percentage of dying and you're in the hospital and it's like everybody is in there with Tyvek suits and it, it's a weird sci-fi environment and then you're back out and you're like, three weeks later, like, my kids are in the swimming pool. Everything's fine. I feel great. Mm-hmm. What was that? Like, I, my feeling is that this is all going to come up into some sort of hallucinatory dismissal of authenticity. And people are going to realize, we're like, wow, fuck that. And here's my great hope mm-hmm. is that, is that the, the, Wonder Bread version of Donald Trump that was based on some sort of sense of like, oh, he is he is the expressivist version of a on of a of a celebrity talent show leader, mm-hmm. right? That even his like sense of speaking truth, like garbage truth to folks like his right. idea like his his being serious but not literal like even that will come to seem fake because people are like no, no 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 that's not what i want right now what i want now is like hyperbole 
what I, what I want now is like, is like the extremes of expertise or like the total debasement or whatever. I want something other than what others, whatever system I just lived through for the last 18 months. I, I think it's possible. <laughs> oh my God. I'm getting handicapped here. No, I think it's possible. I think you'll see like, it in. It's like, you're like, it's a par five and <laughs> you could hit the green with that five iron but i don't think so i think (laughs) we'll see it in literature and art and movies and i think our escapist world will not will actually be escapist and will be hyperbole and will be the hallucinatory actual escape i think people are also living too are too scared in some ways for that to be the kind of overarching theme of society because I think for this time for a lot of people is so scary, but I do think in art and TV and movies, and that's where I do think it's going to be that. I think it's going to be more people reading, like you're reading DeLillo again. I think more people will read um, books that they haven't otherwise either that are, that just have, are almost amoral. I don't mean that in, yeah. in a negative yeah, no. way, but like yeah. just without bounds yeah. and without realm. Right. I think that's, I think that's a good way of putting it. It's like they, even reading the DeLillo, I was reading white noise. I got through about midway through and I'm in the last third and it's, and it's lost. It's, it's losing its momentum. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's just sort of like, it's sort of continuing on and now it's a little bit more literary than it was before. Right. The middle third is really like the third of the event and this, like the family that's escaping this um, airborne toxic event and whatever else is going on. And it's all genuinely well-observed and hilarious and, and a good comparison to what we've all just been living through and are continuing <laughs> to live through. And then, and then this book gets to like the second half and it's all, and again, it goes, it's trying to, what it's trying to do is it's trying to pin back down into human fundamental being. It's Mm -hmm. trying to, it's trying to regain its ground and it's still wonderfully well written and the characters are still wonderfully close observed. And it basically moves into a whole kind of drug addiction, psychodrama, but you, but all of a sudden it's, it's like, it's at the level of the individual and you're like, wow, this is no longer this like bizarre collective experience. And so I'm not interested in reading it anymore. Mm -hmm. At least maybe that's, that was my, my assessment of it. And, it, and at the level of the bizarre individual experience, it's not hyperbolic enough and it's not silly enough. It's not, right. you know, there's, there's, no, there's no history impinging upon it. Whereas, you know, I think back to, I'm thinking of like Gravity's Rainbow in the 1970s as sort of like one of the first kind of launch pads for a, an, let's not call it a full postmodernism, but like a after modernist literature. Mm-hmm. And you know there were like fifty pages about I don't know if it's fifty maybe it's twenty five but an entire military troop eating bananas right <laughs> like like cooking bananas and having bananas like one way or another and you're just like and you read it and you're like 
what the fuck is going on? Yeah. This is insane, right? That's where I think it's important because to make sure that it is escapist because Beckett is postmodern, but I don't think people are going to go through this experience and pick up waiting for Godot. I just, there's, or, um, but however, Chuck Palahniuk, or however you pronounce it in Fight Club, you know, I don't think Fight Club's as good of a book as Waiting for Godot. However, that, that is, that's much more escapist in a way that, and much more visceral. I think that could see a huge rise in readership right now because there is something that's much more, um, applicable to our daily lives and not applicable at all so i i agree with you i just think it it needs it's it's almost got to be completely outside the the realm of reality yeah and also people are being i mean every organization my organization higher education every arts organization everyone's like connect with your audience connect with your community connect with your people how can you be more authentic and i completely understand that drive i completely understand this desire for people to be in contact with one another through these distributed means we're doing it over zoom we're mm-hmm. you know having these kinds of conversations people are going to reject that when it comes to how their lives are represented mm-hmm. right like and what kinds of emotions and what kinds right. of affects they want to see and consume and it's not going to be a drive for authenticity they're going to want to they are going to want monstrous homunculi versions of themselves that are unrecognizable and hyperbolic and insane and god is it not going to be quote-unquote authentic i mean it will be authentic but it's just going to be some like it is going to be zeroed in down some rabbit hole or up someone's ass Mm -hmm. i have no idea but i've all of a sudden got this inkling where it's like oh my god authenticity is fucking dead it is over and there's and then it is and it is going to be like how best you can put on there are 26 million people unemployed no one gives a shit who you are Mm -hmm. it's going to be what what you can do it is going to be back. It is going to be absolute know-how, what you can do, what you can achieve, and your identity, your backstory, and everything else is going to be just like, doesn't matter. One audience gets one story, another audience gets another story. Authenticity is gone. That's my. That's my. I don't know. Your I had hope. Two drinks. That's, <laughs> it's not my hope. In a way, it's like I'm saddened by it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It sounds a little depressing, but at the same time, I kind of relish it. No, I think it's. I think it's good because I think there. I'm happily for authentic, the authenticity movement going away because I think that a lot of people need to get rid of that as a goal. I don't think being authentic is necessarily one of the most important things in life. I think it's much more, I don't care if someone does a good thing because they do, because they want other people to think they're good rather than it being some sort of authentic, like, oh, I truly feel that I had to help that person across the road. As long as it. Just do it. Yeah. You're like, 
you're like ends justify the means. So let's bake, <laughs> let's bake these folks over here in favor of these folks over here. <laughs> so I'm hopeful that it means that people, it's just a reset. I think we'll, I think we will need a reset after this as well. Um, I just, hopefully it's, I just, I don't know if it necessarily needs to be a diehard movie. Yeah. It, it can be, there's got to be, there has to be quality control in it. Really? You're going to throw Yakamoto Tower down the tubes there? Give me a break. I've tried I hope to it's watch, a diehard. I hope I've it's a diehard movie. I've tried to watch more than once. Really? Can't do it. Can't do it? Nope. I'll have to go back. I haven't watched those in ages. I don't even know. What about Towering Inferno? Nope. Never seen it. <gasps> That's the one to watch. I think Charles Heston's in Towering Inferno. I think this is one of the original, like, <sighs> nat- not even natural, like, action excitement engineered disaster movies anyway i'm sure it wasn't it wasn't nearly as much of a disaster as like the guy you saw dancing on san vicente or (laughs) guys walking their pigs it's been a wild wild week on san vicente it has yeah it is and like i'm really frustrated because i'm really locked up in my home i feel like you get out much more than i do i feel like if i could just get out of the house a few more times i'd see much more interesting stuff but put the baby in a a running stroller oh my god the problem is he'd be like jumping out and like running after people and they'd be like he's not wearing a mask he could have covid please infect (laughs) some people (laughs) yeah uh hilarious anyway okay we should probably uh, let you relax, <laughs> get some sleep. I don't know. What do you do when you need to recover from the rotavirus? I don't know. I'm feeling okay. It's very, yeah, I know. I can very see. I can see. You, see. you look very vibrant. I'm just at, like, at, it's like it's like 9.50. It's 9.45. It's yeah. like on a Monday night, you're like, I'm raring to go. You're All like, I did life, for a week life is renewed. was vomit and <laughs> sleep. And we'll cut all of this. We'll cut all of this. <laughs> it's fine. Keep leaving. <laughs> uh, well, anyway. listen, we are happy to have you back. Thank you. Our, our eight listeners, <laughs> five of whom are your family, are happy to have you back. <laughs> and uh, we, we need to record again this week because yes, we uh, missed one. there's a ton of stuff to go after. And, yeah. uh, you know, by the time we get to number eight, we can actually get some new, new equipment. And some guests. <laughs> And some guests. We got to start thinking hard about guests. It's not gonna. Not just anybody gets on this show. <laughs> got to have the right. It's elite. The right mentality. It's elite, but it's also low. We got to find someone that's not uh, too authentic. Not too authentic, and not worried about their own self-authenticity. Right? Like not so much worried about their own self-construction. Very hard to. Very hard to. People like us. It really is. Yeah. Well, Although I feel them. like I feel like you could find them, and it's like you can get them in. You get like a half hour of them at a certain time of night, and then the next day they're like, "I didn't say that. Mm-hmm. Nope, nope, that wasn't me. Nope, nope." Right? It's too bad Peter's not around. He would have done it. He would have done it. Peter would have been fantastic. Well, we can we can we can use that as the kind of guiding light for the guests on the show will have to like ding them if they become too earnest and we too just cut it off self, self-serious and no self-satisfaction yeah 
Or then we just use deep fakes and be like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. And be like, I never said that. And be like, got it on tape. Sorry, pal. Yeah. <laughs> Careers in the toilet. See you next year. Bye. <laughs> See when the economy recovers. Yeah, 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 right. Maybe you should get the rotavirus instead. That would be authentic. Oh, and, you could be, and you could be really different and distinguished. You're like, I don't do COVID. I do rota. Please. You're never going to forget. <laughs> never, never. It Please. was horrible. Have you made it to the seventh floor of the Ronald Reagan Center? No, you probably just made it to like ER and then they shut you loose. Come on. <laughs> they gave me my own room. I be- yeah, see, there you go. Who's elite now? Who's 1%? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All you have to do is be vomiting uncontrollably and they give you your own room. When you can't control your faculties, they're like, just go in here. And that's pretty much what it came down to. That is fantastic. Yeah. All right. Okay. For our eight listeners, just remember, if you need medical care, take some whatever it is, milk of Ipecac or whatever it is, serve mm-hmm. Ipecac, and just show up at ER. <laughs> and they'll take care you'll of get, you. Yeah, you'll get, like a, you'll get like a birthing room from the, <laughs> from the maternity ward. They'll be like, get these ladies out of here. This person needs help. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. A couple days from now, we'll be back. But until then, bye. See you soon. Bye. Work it out.